0: Welcome to the Faith Trends Podcast, conversations that connect research with ministry. Hi, I'm Lindsay Calloway. In today's episode, we hear from Jason Mills, a Canadian pastor, chaplain, and adjunct instructor who recently completed his PhD dissertation on online theological education. My co-host and colleague Rick Heemstra and Jason Mills discuss the implications of exclusive online education for pastors and the repercussions of disembodied learning for character and virtue formation. Jason has done some timely and thoughtful research here. You won't want to miss this conversation. And don't forget to stick around after for Rick and me to debrief and share our own impressions and thoughts about Jason's research.
1: Jason, welcome to the Faith Trends Podcast. I think that we've had a chance to feel the online world during COVID, and more people now work online. Our kids have gone to school online, some of them may still be, and we've gone to church online. Now, you've just finished your dissertation on online theological education. Why did you want to study online theological education?
2: Mm -hmm. Thanks, Rick. Great question. Glad to be here. It started probably for me as a, when I was a pastor, it was back in the maybe early 2010, 2011, sometime around then, that uh, I started to hear more about schools that were educating pastors online. So you could do theological education, just courses online, and then there started to be programs that were entirely online. And as a pastor, I started to have questions about that. I started to do a little bit of digging, not too much, but started to realize that there's not a lot out there that are raising some flags. There's a lot of people that are excited and eager to get online and to do education online because there's a lot of great reasons for that. But there weren't a lot of people kind of raising some cautionary flags. And I was concerned about that. And I wanted to look into that a little bit more. So that's why I decided in 2017 to do that, to commit to doing a PhD and doing that deep dig into it.
1: Okay. So, in your dissertation, you have two words, and they're, they're both foreign words, that capture two approaches to theological education. One is paideia, I think I've pronounced that right, and the other is ein richtiges deutsches Wort, Wissenschaft, a real German word, Wissenschaft. <laughs> Can you briefly tell us what these words mean? And, and I'm thinking specifically about the story about the move from paideia to Wissenschaft.
2: Absolutely <laughs> fantastic. I am not a German speaker so uh, so well done. Uh, for sure. So Paideia actually has its origins in, in kind of the Greek education system um, way back in like, uh, you know, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Uh, and it was a concept of the kind of forming a well-rounded human being. Uh, and it, at that time, it was, you know, the, the perfect male, essentially. But it's the concept of educating or enculturating a group or a citizen, like a group of citizens to be kind of the best human beings they can be. And the Christians, the early Christians kind of, you know, jumped on this kind of concept. And and that was the early, the way that the Christians educated early on was, was to actually enculturate people into this Christian movement. Then the Enlightenment came along and rationalism became a strong influence, especially in Europe. You know, the University of Berlin was one of the first universities to start educating around the scientific methodology of looking at the intellect, looking at the way of approaching knowledge as not so much being a way of enculturating, but a way of understanding, of thinking rightly and correctly. And so theological schools started to be influenced by this. So Wissenschaft would be that scientific approach or methodology that we look at specific subjects, we educate, we shape the brain or the mind in order to think rightly, and thereby hopefully (laughs) we will live rightly in the process. It doesn't always work like that, but that's the essence of that.
1: So I think that you, you're you also talking about the way in which pastoral preparation, if I can use that word, was more of an apprenticeship that actually took place outside of the academy. Can you talk just a little bit about the reasons why it got moved into the academy? Sure.
2: From my understanding, it again, I'm not a historian, so I didn't spend a ton of time looking at the historical ways of apprenticeship But basically, pastors started to recognize that they just didn't have time or energy to be able to take alongside students. And so as schools started to be opened up to educate and train, there started to be a move away from this kind of clergy taking on one or two students in order to educate them. And that became more of a classroom based experience for them.
1: I think that this was probably part of a larger move in education as well that was taking place at the same time this rethinking about education more in terms of the mind rather than an apprenticeship under a master in a particular subject area. Exactly. So we've been living with technology for a long time now and we're talking about online theological education which is a is a technology and arguably Technology has brought us a lot of benefits. You know, you can think of something as simple as a shovel, for example, that this is a technology, a very simple one. And you argue somewhat controversially, and I'm paraphrasing here, that the tools we use change us. Can you explain how tools change us, and then specifically, how you think online education changes theological or pastoral formation?
2: Absolutely. I don't think it's too controversial to think about tools changing or shaping us, right? Like, for example, if I spend days and hours on my keyboard sitting, typing away, I'm probably going to have some potentially some carpal tunnel issues, especially if ergonomics aren't set up correctly, or I'm going to have issues in terms of, you know, sitting if I'm not sitting correctly. These are tools, right? My chair is a tool. My keyboard's a tool. You know, if I work out, my muscles are going to be shaped by the movements I'm making working out. So all of these things are tools that help us and shape us, and they actually change the way our bodies interact with the world. So as I think about online technology, the question becomes, how is that shaping us? So how is this movement away from direct human-to-human embodied contact with others starting to influence and shape our humanity? What does that look like? So for me, theological education, the essence of it is, how do we become more like Christ, right? And how do we Function as Christ? How do we, as pastors, uh, as chaplains, as clergy persons, how do we embody who Christ is and empower and equip others to become like Christ to others? And if the essence of who Jesus is, is a human being, right? That's the whole point of God becoming human in order to interact with us, in order to save us, in order to die for us. That now we're actually stepping away from this direct embodied human to human connection. So if we're now educating clergy persons through this medium that that is no longer a direct kind of embodied interaction, what does that mean in terms of the incarnation, and and what does that mean in terms of how Christ would call us to be flesh and blood for each other, right? So, I guess that's kind of the heart of questions I had.
1: In your dissertation, you're quoting people like McLuhan and and others, and you have this idea that we really. Don't notice the technologies that we use and how they're shaping us. I think McLuhan said that we become numb to them. There was another place where you talked about a figure in ground, which kind of goes back to these blot images, right? Do you see the blots or do you see the background behind the blots? And we've all worked with optical illusions. You know, it's always trotted out in grade nine science class to prove to us that that our eyes can trick us. But I think the point here is that we're unaware of how the technologies that we use most commonly shape us. What do you think we need to be careful of sort of recognizing that?
2: Yeah, that's just it. There are things that are going on that we're just not aware of. And how do we develop an awareness of those things? It's Some, some of it's just raising the, the issue of saying, look, there are things that are going unnoticed here. So, for example, shaping pastors, right? If we're starting to think we're, we're going to continue to do embodied ministry where we're, where we're coming into contact or we're entering people's homes, where we're sitting down with people and counseling them, where we are, are continuing to have opportunities to be able to interact in embodied ways, then it's probably important for us to recognize that what is technology, online technology, our movement toward devices and away from those direct contacts What is that doing for our now embodied relationships? And then the other side of it is, what if we are actually no longer going to have embodied relationships? Maybe we're starting to say, let's do ministry online, and we no longer need those human to human contacts in, in embodied ways well, what's being lost, right? And then it comes back to the question of the incarnation. And well, what's the whole point of Jesus coming and interacting in an embodied way with human beings? Is there something that happens in community when two people or three people or more people are in direct contact with each other that doesn't happen when that's not the case? So I think there's there's potential things that are lost that I'm not even fully aware of.
1: Are there things that you can specifically point to, the things that maybe are gained when you're in a person-to-person contact in the way that you're doing ministry?
2: Yes. Uh, Things like the opportunity to be able to touch people, right? Like you can actually give someone a hug. For example, so I'm a military chaplain, and two days ago I did a notification, a Mexican notification, a, a military member had died. And the commanding officer and I showed up at the people's doorstep and went inside and talked to them about this, this tragedy. And yeah. the dad actually hugged the commanding officer, right? Like it's, it's this kind of, you're receiving news in this moment. How do you do that online? Right. Like, how do you not reach out and touch right? Like, I think there's a physicality. And I think there's a sacramental thing too, and I know some evangelical traditions aren't particularly sacramental, but I think there is a physicality to our faith, the way we we understand Christ, the way we understand our faith, the way we understand each other, that there's a physicality to it that's lost when it's being mediated technologically.
1: Jason, in your dissertation, you argue for the importance of something called self-differentiation in theological education. Can you briefly tell us what this is? why it's important, and how might online learning affect self-differentiation?
2: I think very simply it would be that self-differentiation is the ability to maintain a sense of healthy self, like who am I, who is God calling me to be, in the midst of relationships that can become anxious. And so this plays an important role in terms of church where a pastor is perhaps trying to navigate the politics of things that happen on a board level or committee levels where there are, are people or even, you know, families that are at war. And how do I maintain a sense of a healthy sense of self and what is God asking me and calling me to do, even if people might not be happy with me? And so, you know, as I think about, you know, how do you maintain that that sense of your own healthy identity when there's these tensions. And so in an online environment, it's, it's difficult to teach that. It's difficult to understand how you're supposed to do that.
1: Can you just kind of key in for a minute on what is it about the online environment that makes it difficult to teach that?
2: I think online, there's a sense of, there might be disagreements that we might have. Like if you even envision a board meeting, you know, you have these people that are sitting on Zoom and there, there's some tensions that are existing and you can feel that. But at the end of the day, you kind of click, like you click off and there's no like parking lot conversations, which probably are not good things, but they are ways that kind of help people to decompress some of the feelings of anxiety and, and stress and, and tension that they might have felt. And so how do I learn how to deal with all of that um, when I just click off and then I have to you know, see these people back online again, or I might see them face to face. And, and uh, how do you learn how to navigate those dynamics?
1: And I think so often, you know, the way that we learn is we see somebody who does it well and we kind of watch them. And in a similar situation, right, where we're emulating them, like we're, we're applying those lessons. Absolutely. I noticed that in your thesis, you use the language of virtues instead of values. So I was wondering if you could talk about why you did that, because I think a lot of times we think that those are the same things. I don't think they are. Can you explain how they're different?
2: Sure. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And I'd love to hear your perspective on it too, but essentially when I, when I think of values, I think of something that's internally that I might convince myself that I really believe this, right? Like I might value eating healthy and I might say that, you know, I really value healthy eating habits, but I might not actually eat healthy. Um, whereas virtues are things I think that other people can see. So you may not be able to see the values that I hold. But you should be able to see the virtues that I am demonstrating. So am I, and I think of virtues as being the fruit of the spirit, right? Am I loving? Am I patient? Am I kind? Those are the ways that I would define it.
1: I usually think of it as, you know, virtues are things that are good, whether I value them or not.
2: Well said. There you go.
1: Yeah. Well. Let's move on then to talk about solutions. In your thesis up until this point that I'm thinking about right now, you've had this progression where you've seen the move from Paideia to Wissenschaft, the move from a more apprentice-like approach to education, where theological education, where it's more a question of the mind. It's a question of learning things. And now we are in a situation where there is more of an emphasis on sort of the disembodied self in the online world. Then you, you move it around and you start to talk about field education. And you have a, a number of uh, recommendations here. What, why is field education important? And what are your recommendations for making that a better component of pastoral education or formation?
2: I think field education is the one place that if you're going to do an online program, you have to do some sort of embodied practicum. And so if you're going to do an MDiv online, there still has to be that embodied practicum element. That's why I recognize that field education has to be addressed. And, and so I did find a number of challenges and issues with field education, because in some ways it's just kind of tacked on to a program and it's it is not necessarily valued in the same way as, quote unquote, academic programs and courses.
1: How does it make up for the deficiencies that you see in online theological education, or how can we improve the way these programs have been offered?
2: I would say that the practical aspects of field education put you in direct contact or should put you in direct contact with mentors, with supervisors that can help you as a beginner, as a novice. To learn not only the skills that are needed in terms of practical pastoral ministry, but also the attitudes and the the ways of being in relationship with with a congregation. And so that's an opportunity. If it's functioning well, there's a seasoned supervisor or mentor who is not only demonstrating the skills, but also how are you to be in a healthy way in the midst of a congregation that may be angry or frustrated or grieving or going through uh, a time of celebration? H- how, how are you to be as a pastor in, in the midst of that?
1: So earlier on, you said that the move away from Pydia to Wissenschaft, to move away from a model, an more of an apprentice-like model, which I think we could see field education as sort of modeling that, Said that that happened largely because pastors didn't have time to train students. Mm-hmm. How do we address that same kind of constraint with pastors today?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's where competency-based theological education has some, some advantages, where the pastor isn't the only, like isn't wholly responsible for the students, that there's actually others, like there can be a, kind of a supervisory committee that's comprised of an academic professor, a pastor, a spiritual director, for example, that can work with the student or a group of students to help them out. So the pastor that's supervising doesn't feel like they have the, the full weight of having the student to, to mentor them.
1: That's really good. Can you just back up for a minute and define competency-based education for those who may not be familiar with it?
2: Sure, yeah. It's a fairly new movement. And rather than saying we require pastors to, uh, or those doing, doing master's degrees in theological studies or divinity, rather than saying they need these certain number of courses and their courses in these kind of categories... It's basically saying, what are the competencies that are required at the end of it? So, for example, one of the competencies might be languages. You need to to have an understanding of original languages like Greek and Hebrew. Uh, Another competency might be that you need to be able to interact with grieving people for example, and then what happens is you teach for that competency. So you educate in terms of the mind. You educate in terms of the way, the attitudes, the the way you you should be actually doing these sorts of things. Um, if they're if they're if they're focused on those areas, and then you basically at the end you say, has this person achieved essentially mastery of this competency? And if the person hasn't achieved it, they don't pass that specific area. And if they have achieved it, then it's recognized. Yes, this person has mastered the competency, you've demonstrated it, let's move on and deal with other areas of education.
1: My colleague Lindsay and I have just completed a set of interviews with small church pastors and we were really surprised to learn that so many of the pastors would say something like, you know, I was really happy with the theological education and learning the hermeneutics and the systematic theology, but I graduated and I didn't know how to conduct a funeral. Mm-hmm. Or I graduated and I didn't know how to conduct a wedding or how to work with boards. And there's this whole um, area of pastoral work that they're unprepared for. And, and, you know, as I read your thesis, I could just see, you know, here's the Wissenschaft, that's what they're prepared for. And then there's this whole other side of pastoral life, which really is what makes or breaks pastors. Mm-hmm. And it's missing from their formation and they're looking to find that in other places. Absolutely. So you're a pastor and now a military chaplain and you get at this in your dissertation but what is the pastor's core role and how should knowing this shape theological education? I love uh... All right, all right. So I'm going <laughs> to I'm just going to interject here, okay? So the core role, I took this out of your thesis and I was just really struck by it. It's a Eugene Peterson quote. Yeah. And he says that the pastor's responsibility is to keep the community attentive to God. Absolutely.
2: That's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to say, I love Eugene Peterson. He, I think he's a pastor's pastor. And that's it, that quote. It's this beautiful human divine connection, right? That That's really all the role of a pastor is to be, help people to be attentive to God. And that means so many different things for so many different congregations, depending on where they are, depending on their experiences, and how do you help a person to discern what the congregation needs and how God might be speaking to that congregation, you're not just going to get that by doing a whole bunch of coursework and graduating with a degree at the end.
1: Jason, before we wrap up, what's the most important thing you learned? The kind of so what that you take away from your dissertation? How would you sum it up?
2: You know, I think the thing I think I'm taking away is I'm surprised more people aren't alert to some of these things. Like I'm surprised there's not more people saying, maybe we need to rethink this. Like maybe we need to stop, pause, reflect theologically on what we're doing and ask, is this the best way we should be doing it?
1: Okay. And if people want to connect with you or your research to help them in their reflection, how can they do that?
2: You can go to my website, jasonmills.ca. I'm slowly adding, there's a blog there. I'll I'll be adding things that I'll be publishing in the future. And there's a way to reach out to me there as well. I'm happy to make those connections.
1: Jason Mills, thank you for being on the Faith Trends podcast.
2: Thank you. It's a a joy to be here.
0: Thinking of this conversation you just had with Jason, Rick, I was really reminded at how timely it is that we are thinking about the effects of online education. I was struck by the fact that he actually started his PhD on this topic before the pandemic began. And so the fact that his research is coming out now is just going to be really relevant and probably even more broadly relevant than just theological education as we're thinking about the effects of a technologically mediated ministry for the most part for the last year and a half through screens. And so I was just thinking about the implications on church services and prayer meetings and many conferences and webinars, and what are the implications, what is the loss that we've experienced that we might not even have noticed, loss of touch, the loss of a year and a half of virtue and spiritual formation that happens when you're in embodied creational contexts.
1: Yeah, and I think when we're thinking about context, what we have to do is figure out what a technology is good for. I remember uh, Neil Postman said that television is really good for entertainment and that everything it touches, it turns into entertainment, so that when you try to do something serious like politics, that it just turns politics into entertainment. I think that what we've tried to do, because we had to, is that we've moved worship services online in the last year, and I'm not sure that worship services is something that Zoom does well. There are other things that I think it does well, like meetings. But I think that we've seen, as we've kind of grown fatigued of it, both in school and in church, that maybe all of the promise that these uh, connecting technologies had really haven't borne the fruit that they promised.
0: And then I'm thinking, what are the draws to online education, And we can think about theological education more specifically because that's what Jason researched. But I think some of the advantages are that it can happen across space and time when people don't have access to a theological institution in their backyard or they can't afford to make the move there. I can even reflect on my own time in seminary, I think one of the drawbacks for me actually to even considering an MDiv was the fact that I was already working two jobs, and so it was easier for me to just do an MA because there wasn't all of those kind of components packed into what an MDiv required, including those field education pieces. So I think there are just, there are advantages and draws to online education that we need to be thinking about, but as Jason has so helpfully done, is what aren't we thinking about at the same time?
1: Yeah, I think Jason's big point is that we're not just a big brain and that we have bodies and relationships and other parts of life. So I think online education can do a great job of of delivering content, of delivering ideas. But I think Jason's point is that there's this whole other value And wisdom piece that need to become part of of forming us as well and if I understood Jason right that the online education just can't deliver that and if we think that delivering education online is the whole thing then we're going to leave people with part of what they should have been getting
0: I was reminded a bit about our faith formation and families study that we've been conducting and a lot of the parents said that so much more is caught than taught, that there really is value in teaching through example that we don't often think about. And could something like parenting be done through a screen? No. So why do we expect it when we're forming our spiritual leaders?
1: Yeah, those are very good questions. And I, I know that so many schools are uh, looking at online education because it is a way to attract more students and to to save money, quite frankly. But probably we need to have a bigger conversation first, I guess, about what it means to be formed as a pastor. I'm using that somewhat differently because I think in the past, we've talked more about being educated and assumed it's always the mind. But we want our pastors to be well-formed and that's the whole person. And I think if we start there, then we'll have better conversations about how we get them there.
0: Thanks for listening. Find out more about the EFC's research at www.theefc.ca slash research.